The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Alex Canizares. He is a partner at Perkins Coie, focusing on government contract. Alex, uh, welcome. It's great to uh, have you on. Great to be here, Roger. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, today's our, our topic is what is now a ubiquitous start part of government contracts at cybersecurity and what contractors need to know, where it's how it's evolving, what's going on with it. And I can think of no one better to talk to than Alex on this as one of the his focus areas of his practice. Uh, but with that, Alex, uh, can you talk a little bit about your background? Um, you know, how you ended up in government contracts <laughs> practice um, and at Perkins Coie, and then we can get into the meat of the topic. Sure. Thanks, Roger. Uh, so as you mentioned, I'm a partner in the government contracts practice group at, at Perkins Coie in Washington. So I represent government contractors in litigation, investigations, uh, regulatory counseling related to all aspects of federal procurement. And that includes, you know, bid protests, claims and disputes, False Claims Act matters, I think we'll touch on a bit today, FAR, you know, DFARS compliance, and increasingly cybersecurity, which, as you mentioned, is a really top of mind issue for our clients. So I came to the firm in 2019. Before that, I was a trial attorney in the Justice Department, uh, and I was in the civil division uh, working, both doing trial work and appellate level work, mostly government contracts cases. So a lot of contract claims, bid protests, some FCA uh, issues. And uh, before that, I was in private practice for another six years. So I sort of come full circle. And I've always been in Washington, went to school at GW for law school. Uh, I clerked in, in Virginia for a year, but I've been in Washington for a while and was really drawn to being in D.C. primarily because of my interest in, in the government and public policy. Right. And public policy, you know, lots of public policy gets implemented in part through government contracts and, you know, government unique requirements for government contractors and cybersecurity is no different in term in that, in those terms. And, you know, so today we're going to talk about the evolving framework for cybersecurity for government contractors. And I think, you know, maybe we can just start with a little bit is like what the basics have been up to this point or up to the last couple of years in terms of the rules of the road and, you know, the NIST standard and that sort of thing. And then we can talk about, you know, how it's evolving, where it's changing. So Alex, you know, what, what are the, some of the key fundamental provisions and things that contractors, you know, need to be aware of in their government contracts? Right. So the, the existing contract clauses that many contractors are subject to uh, include that there's a basic safeguarding clause in the FAR, uh, which is 52204-21. And that's basically a list of 17 pretty basic, relatively basic uh, practices that contractors are required to implement. That is pretty much it as far as the FAR goes. The DFARS, starting in 2016 on the defense side for defense contractors, the, um, the DFARS 7012 clause, as it's called, is a list of, or it basically requires contractors to implement 
the NIST 800-171 controls. And that's been really the, the subject of a lot of conversation in, in many years, in recent years, about uh, CMMC and some of the, the idea around protecting controlled unclassified information that contractors possess. The concern being, the government's concern being, that contractors are in possession of a lot of sensitive information, unclassified information on their networks. They need to implement these controls. They're allowed to do that through, uh, you know, basically adopting these protections, but also can uh, use a plan of action and milestones if they haven't reached, you know, haven't fully implemented them. That's been the existing framework that we've been operating under for many, many years. It is about to change. It is in the process of changing, and I'm sure we'll touch on that. But that's really been the focus. Um, in addition to that, we're seeing agencies, DHS, VA, for example, with their own sort of agency-specific rules, thing, you know, requirements around CUI and, and other safeguards uh, that people need to take. And I think many of our clients, too, see that there are specific cybersecurity requirements that they have in their contracts or that, that relate to cybersecurity in some fashion. Um, and of course, and then you have Section 889 under the FY uh, 2019 NDAA, which caused a lot of still ongoing conversation and, and concern and, and among contractors about how do you represent to the government you know, that you've ensured that you're not using covered telecommunications equipment and services. That's a related you know, regulatory requirement that is still in effect. Right. And, and with 889, they haven't finalize the rule right at this point at the second part like the first part is you can't sell covered telecommunications equipment to the federal government the second part is you can't use that in your operations and there's no like fencing of that in the sense that it just it, the language of the statute was so broad it's just theoretically any operation worldwide if you're a multinational corporation that you can't use this stuff and i think the governments haven't challenges to try to how to finally implement that that in a in a manner that that's actually executable on is that your sort of take on it that's definitely been my take we got a lot of questions when that rule came out i'd say we have had you know still questions coming out from our clients about how to you know how to construe some of these terms like reasonable inquiry and use in this rule that caused a lot of concern in part because of the reason you mentioned it requires you to represent that you're not using this equipment anywhere in your business, not just within if you've got a, you know, a, a segment of your business that does government work. And it was released as an interim final rule, which meant that it was in effect, it was binding, it just wasn't final. And they were going to receive comments on it, and they did. So, yeah, I think it remains to be seen, you know, what we're going to see in the form of a final rule or when. Uh, but in the meantime, there's a lot of other rulemaking underway. It's yes. keeping, our, uh, keeping us busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that, but I do have to ask you one question because I kept looking at this and when I try to explain to people, it's very logical, but it's still wrapping, to me, wrapping your head around what is controlled unclassified information. I know there's definitions of it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's a starting point, right? If you have that, these you know basic FAR clause and the DFARS clauses apply, right? Yes. And I would say the question of what is CUI continues to be one that really vexes a lot of contractors trying to understand what is CUI. There is a definition of CUI. It is basically, this is information, again, it's unclassified information, but is controlled either by under, under a statute, under a regulation, under a government-wide policy. 
And, you know, the National Archives has a registry, a CUI registry, and you can go on there and see what the different categories of CUI are. And contractors have to, you know, they're responsible for understanding what those requirements are, what those categories are. Usually what the government, it's the government's responsibility in the contract to put the contractor on notice that, hey, your contractor is going to involve some CUI. And contractors need to get comfortable with, you know, how to approach their government customers of this topic, get some, you know, information if they're unsure. In many instances, uh, there might be an overmarking of CUI. So contractors are getting documents, they say CUI, but it doesn't appear that it should be CUI. There can be questions around the government um, failing to mark something, in which case maybe the contractor then has an obligation to do something with that information. So these create a lot of a, a lot of questions and a lot of you know concerns, and I think we're sort of ripe for some a CUI rule that might provide greater clarity around CUI. But it, it is like you say, it's a sort of a threshold question: Do I have CUI? And if you do, you have to take all these other steps to make sure you're protecting it. Has it been in your experience too? Like if you're having conversations with the government, like this contracting officers or whoever, about whether or not the contract involves handling of CUI that they always err on the side of, yes, it is, uh, you know, kind of like whether it is or not, just to protect themselves in a certain sense. Is that, you know, something that you've seen? I would say anecdotally, yes, that that tends to be something that I've heard that there is a, um, maybe it, it's sort of a human nature that, you know, it may be risk aversion, but tends to be an answer that, may not be too helpful in some instances because, you know, in some cases that could really have a big consequence if the answer is yes, that's CUI. At the same time, I think it is good to have open communication with, you know, your your contracting officer on these things. And sometimes there's a back and forth. You might not like the answer you get initially, but you have to be ready to engage with them to get the guidance that you need. Right. So that's kind of some of the basics, Alex, and we're getting, we have about a minute left in this segment. So, Real quickly, you know, we have a lot, You, as you mentioned, alluded to, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of rules potentially coming. And they all, I think, sort of stem from, you know, the White House's, you know, approach to cybersecurity. So what's kind of the, you know, the triggering document or the response administration that's kind of leading to all these potential regulatory updates? Right. right. There's two things I would mention. One is we had an executive order that President Biden signed in April or or May of 2021 uh, on improving the nation's cybersecurity. That gave rise to a lot of activity, including the two new rules that we're just focusing on now. Um, In addition to that, the White House released its national cybersecurity strategy in March of this year. And then an implementation plan that came out of that. And that really provides an important blueprint for where we go next in terms of um, basically at a White House level, what they're trying to accomplish for cybersecurity. Right. Well, Alex, it's a perfect place for us to take a break. And when we come back, we can dive a little bit deeper into the national security strategy, the executive order, and leading to some regulations, even some recent proposed rules that have been issued for public comment um, that we're going to dive into as well. My guest today is Alex Canizaris. He is a partner at Perkins Coie. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Alex Canizaris. He is 
a partner at Perkins Coie uh, here in Washington, D.C., focusing on government contracts for his clients. And cybersecurity is a big part of that practice. And Alex, uh, when we ended the last segment, we just introduced the thought there's a lot, you know, the evolving nature of the cybersecurity rules. And there's a couple of key sort of events, milestones, so to speak, um, in that regard. And that's you know, President Biden's executive order from May of 2021 that you mentioned, and also the White House National Cybersecurity Strategy that was issued in the spring of this year. Um, those two things sort of set a framework, I think, for where the government's going to go in terms of implementing and, you know, addressing cybersecurity, both for agencies as well as contractors. Can you kind of put those two sort of documents, events into context for the listeners? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, the executive order, it's 14028, and that came out in May of 2021. That was a response to a series of very high-profile cyber incidents, the Solar Winds incident, uh, Colonial Pipeline, there was the Microsoft Exchange uh, breach, and all, of the, and all of these events really highlighted the vulnerabilities that the government saw in terms of protecting its information and contractor information uh, systems. And so basically that became a blueprint for a lot of um, agency initiatives and then the FAR Council in particular to get to work on writing new requirements. And so that's what we're starting to see several years later now in terms of new requirements that are going to ultimately end up in contracts. On things like software, for example, that was one of the section four of the executive order talks at length about the vulnerabilities for software. And the solar winds incident really highlighted how software vulnerabilities can really create significant exposure for the government and for its information. And so what we're seeing in terms of, you know, software bill of materials, that's one of the requirements in this new uh, proposed rule uh, that came out of that executive order. And another part of that executive order focused on information sharing, removing barriers between the information that contractors possess that the government wants in order to be able to respond to a cyber incident and take that information and help prevent the next cyber incident. And that's now what we're seeing in, in terms of the, the new rule on cyber incidents. In terms of the cybersecurity strategy, that there are five pillars to that strategy. And it's not procurement focused, but I think it really has a lot of important you know, points from it for government contractors to be mindful of. One is the strategy talks about shifting responsibility uh, from the end user so the person sitting at their computer who opens some malicious email, for example, you know, shift responsibility from that person to the owners and the operators of the technology that are in the best position to actually implement the changes and the requirements that can fix and avoid the risk. And for software in particular, this calls for shifting responsibility and liability to software producers. As uh, in terms of False Claims Act and enforcement, this uh, policy, I think it's noteworthy that the national cyber strategy specifically references the DOJ civil cyber fraud initiative and this notion of holding people accountable if they're knowingly putting government information systems at, at risk. So those are two things to, to mention. And then also there's this concept of harmonization. I think it's really important as we think about, particularly as you mentioned, you know, we we're talking about DOD, VA, DHS, people doing their, you know, going off in different directions. I think there really is a critical need for harmonization. And the White House has embraced that in this uh, policy and in, in, the, in the strategy. But I think that's where we are right now. I think there's going to be with these rulemakings, 
increasingly a conversation about how do we harmonize? And there's actually a pending RFI that the Office of the National Cyber Director has opened right now. And the comment period closes at the end of October, but that is soliciting comment on what are the opportunities for harmonization in this area? And what are some of the challenges? And I think that's a real opportunity to engage with industry on that important topic. Yeah, Alex, it's kind of what your experiences or your clients' experiences, and I hear it from companies all the time. Well, you know, the department, the Air Force has this requirement for cyber, but that's not, you know, that's not necessarily good enough for the Navy, right? If anything is good enough for the Navy, right? I don't know. But, you know, just differing requirements across the government enterprise, and that all costs money because if you have to do things slightly different each time, depending on the nature of the requirements, you know, it does make it harder for people to enter the market if you're looking for new technology and capabilities. You know, is that something that you you talked about a little bit, but that's a big deal for your clients? I think it is a big deal for, for clients. I think that many companies with, especially clients that are, you know, they're operating in maybe the government market as even a small portion of their business. I mean, we have, we have clients that are for whom the public sector market is maybe a small portion and they have to, they have to grapple with these cybersecurity requirements, not just with respect to the government, but they're also concerned about SEC reporting requirements or, you know, other legal obligations that relate to privacy and things of that nature. So it's very, very complex. And I think it's encouraging, I would say that there is at least a recognition that harmonization should be the objective. I think that the trick will be how do we execute that objective? I mean, how do we actually get everybody rowing in the same direction? Right. I think your point about the RFI, that's a great opportunity to engage the government. So coming out of the e executive order and the strategy, I guess more of the executive order, are these two recent FAR rules. Can well, Let's talk about these two. There's a cyber incident reporting and information sharing proposed rule and then um, standardizing cybersecurity requirements for unclassified federal information systems proposed rule. What are the key sort of takeaways from these two rules? Sure. Well, I'd start off with one of the key takeaways just to highlight here is, you know, these are FAR rules, right? We're not talking about DFARs anymore. We're talking about FAR, which is civilian agencies, and they apply in the case of the cyber incident reporting rule to commercial vendors, to COTS providers. So the expansiveness here is really worth underscoring. And, and under the cyber incident rule in particular, according to the FAR Council, it will apply to 75% of all contractors. So you have a much broader scope than what we were talking about before. Um, the, the other thing to mention too is the nature of this type of requirement for cyber incident reporting. It really like I said, it stems back for the, to the executive order, but it's very onerous. We're talking about basically a requirement to report a security incident within eight hours of discovery. And um, the definition of security incident I can talk about, but is, is very, uh, includes not only an actual incident, but a potential incident. We wow. Can, okay. So actual versus potential. I mean, is that sort of like Karnak? You got to read somebody's mind that there's actually something going on here or I, I don't know how do you figure that out that's well, that is I, a, that's a significant burden it seems to me or shifting of risk to companies and the contracts 
It really is. I mean, one of my basic recommendations for any company trying to grapple with this is to just really read these definitions closely and think about how does this scope affect my my business, right? Because there's going to be, for one, you have to consider this definition of information or communications technology, because that's basically what this is focused on, ICT. If you use ICT, you provide ICT to the government, you're going to be subject to this rule. ICT, by the way, is a computer. It's software. It's a huge, huge category. And so in terms of the reporting requirement, the way I read this language, it would a security incident, and in particular CISA and, and law enforcement agencies that want to investigate these things, the government really wants to know about the incident right away. I mean, eight hours. You, you're not going to have complete information within eight hours, but the government wants you to notify them so that it can basically understand and get notice of, you know, help basically help uh, troubleshoot what the, what the issues might be. And you're supposed to report or update within 72 hours after that until the issue has been remediated. So the concept is sort of it's an evolving reporting requirement, right? It's not we're going to conduct an investigation and get to ground truth and then notify the government. It's much faster than that. So it, it raises a lot of questions, you know, how to cut, what is the line between what needs to get reported and what doesn't? Um, how do you protect confidences, trade secrets, intellectual property, things of that nature that many companies will be reluctant to be forthcoming about? Yeah. So that's a good place to break for the next segment. When we come back, Alex, we'll finish up on these two sort of FAR clauses. I think then we'll turn to CMMC. Um, and talk about that because, again, that's another implementation thing that's got had a long, strange trip so far, and it continues. Um, and my guest today is Alex Canizares. He is a partner at Perkins Coie. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guest today is Alex Canizares. He is a partner at Perkins Coie here in Washington, D.C., focusing on government contracts and Cybersecurity is a big part of those government contracts, Alex, right? And when we took the break at, uh, at the end of the last segment, we were talking about these two proposed rules that came out this month. Uh, one is the cyber incident reporting and information sharing rule. The other is the standardizing cybersecurity requirements for unclassified federal information systems. And you, you, we were focusing initially on the cyber reporting, incident reporting rule. And I, I know you, you mentioned earlier in, in the show that there's SBOM requirements in that role. Can you talk a little bit about those and, and then anything else about information sharing that's in there? And then we can turn to the other role. Sure. Yeah. So the SBOM is a requirement that, again, was stemmed back to that executive order, section four of the executive order that talked about software security and specifically highlighted SBOMs as a way of providing greater visibility into the software supply chain. And so what this requirement would impose is that contractors have to maintain and provide to the government an SBOM for any software that's, quote, used in the performance of the contract, regardless of whether there's a security incident as to that software. That's a very significant you know, obligation and step. It's a major undertaking. Now, basically what the SBOM is, is you can think of it like a list of ingredients on food packaging or something of that nature. It's basically meant to give uh, either the software developer or the purchaser, um, some visibility into the providence of the different components of the software and basically effectively manage risk better. 
Now, in terms of how the government is going to use the SBOM, that's a whole separate question. But in terms of what they're requiring contractors to provide, contractors really will have to be thinking about this. It's not just, you know, what the prime is supposed to do, but what do they need from their vendors? What if you're a reseller? You know, what if you are a systems integrator, but you have some hardware that has a software component? Any software that's used in the performance of the contract will require an SBOM, at least under the way that the rule is proposed. So that's a really major under uh, significant, you know, obligation. The other thing I would say too is the rule says, it has a series of questions about how to, how to implement the SBOM and suggests that the FAR Council hasn't figured this out entirely and they recognize they need to get some input from the public and really evaluate how to do this. So it's encouraging that there is at least an opportunity to get some comments. And I think when we see comments, by the way, that the, the comment period for this rule will close on December 4th. And I expect we'll see, you know, trade organizations and, and a whole variety of stakeholders commenting on this SBOM requirement in particular, because it is going to be very impactful. So when you say used in the performance of the contract, like that could be, that's a pretty wide descriptive language, I guess, in terms of the rule, like what does that mean and what doesn't it mean? So that, that's too, it means to be navigated. Let's turn to the other rule real quickly and then we get into CMMC after that. But the standardizing cyber requirements for unclassified federal information systems, what is that rule you know, doing or proposing for government contractors? Right. So here we have this concept of standardizing. And I think as we, we talked about this idea of harmonization before. So we, this rule is attempting to set sort of a standard FAR requirement for federal information systems. And it's really important to understand what that, that term federal information systems consists of. It does include not only, you can think of a, you know, an agency and their own federal, you know, their own information systems. It can also include a contractor you know, operating an information system on behalf of an agency. But these uh, FISs, federal information systems, are defined in a way that would be different from you know, a contractor's own information system, what they're operating in their ordinary business. That being said, I mean, it really is under, it's important for contractors to look at this definition, you know, review it and understand how it might apply to them. But essentially what this will lay out is going to be, there are two different clauses that will be implemented in the FAR, one for cloud-based services and the other for non-cloud-based services. And for each of them, there's going to be specific, you know, privacy security controls that will get implemented in the context of uh, cloud, you know, basically the clause would uh, adopt FedRAMP type of requirements. So the agency would basically be using FedRAMP type of requirements, FedRAMP being the security system for cloud-based services. And there's going to be an annual cyber threat and vulnerability assessment. Uh, contractors have to perform independent assessments and, and security assessments of the uh, these information systems. So there's a lot to unpack in here. But I think it's going to be something that um, will affect not necessarily all contractors like the like the other one. Right. When you mentioned that word assessments too, um, Alex, I start thinking about which we can transition to. How about that? Good segue to CMMC. And, you know, there's assessments involved in that. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about, you know, where we are with CMMC? And, you know, I think now there's three different levels that companies have potentially fall into in terms of their, you know, I guess, accreditation or certification. 
Um, just talk a little bit about where CMMC is because it has been, you know, we've been talking about this, you know, you know, into the, it started all in the last administration, bef- you know, even before the current one. Yeah. So just from a sort of procedural standpoint, where we are is that the Office of Management and Budget has uh, it been reviewing the rule and we expect it's going to be issued imminently. I mean, that that seems to be that the writing on the wall is that CMMC is is going to happen. Uh, it will be issued, whether it comes in the form of a proposed rule or an interim final rule remains to be seen. I expect it would be a proposed rule. But basically, this is going to be implementing uh, CMMC 2.0, which was announced as sort of a framework, an approach. And, a, and that was a revision of what was 1.0, which came out you know, in 2019, I think, initially. But there needs to be a regulatory you know, implementation of this program, you know, this concept was stood up in in the form of sort of uh, guidance type of approach. And now we're really seeing regulations that or we will that implement it. Um, so basically at a, at a high level, you've got three different levels, you know, and, and it's really an assessment regime. I mean, remember that contractors under the current framework are mostly required to do self-assessments. They're self-attesting to basically their implementation of the NIST 800-171 controls. No longer will that be possible. As a condition of being eligible for a defense contract, a contractor will need to be certified at the the appropriate level. The government, the DOD is going to determine on a contract-specific basis what is the appropriate CMMC level. And so, you know, for level two, that's going to be where a lot of contractors fall for processing CUI. If you process CUI, most likely you'll fall into level two. Level three would be for more advanced, you know, types of uh, contract situations or sensitive information. And level one is for basically you're, you don't touch any CUI. And in that, in that category, you can do a self-assessment under the CMMC regime. But there's going to be a lot of questions, I think, that will come out of the rule whenever it comes out. Um, you know, I'll be looking at, for example, what kind of requirements will the prime be responsible for the sub? You know, this has been one of the tension points that we've seen in this program what requirements or what obligations are we imposing on a prime to make sure that their supply chain is safe and and how do you implement that so right. there's a lot yeah level three if i understand it too is like it's like that's gonna be maybe like weapon systems and the and dod would likely be doing the assessments that but that level two that you mentioned you know they got these you know this idea of third-party assessors uh assessing organizations whatever three, three CPOs or whatever they call them, um, doing those assessments. And I guess they're like the guidance for that. Just, do you have any thoughts on about one of the things that I've heard and I get your take on it is that, you know, there's at least back a year or two ago, whatever, there were like 20, 23 assessing organizations independent to do them. But you know, that category two, where this would happen, there's, you know, tens of thousands of government contractors who would need us you know, these third-party assessments that just doesn't compute to me in terms of, you know, a, a, a swift, say, implementation uh, and adoption. I think that's still a challenge. One of the most pressing challenges right now is is standing up essentially this third-party, you know, accreditation workforce to actually do these uh, assessments and certifications. And I, I agree with you that, you know, as it stands, you know, you've got a, a, the cyber AB, which is itself a third-party 
is responsible for the training and the accreditation and sort of the oversight of the, the third party assessment organizations. But, you know, we really need to understand, at least I want to understand what is the relationship going to be between the organization seeking certification, that is the government contractor and the third party assessment organization. You know, and as a lawyer, I want to know what, you know, what law applies to that contract? Or, you know, what are the disputes provisions in there? But there's going to be a lot of questions, too, just in terms of understanding how can we really scale this, right? How can we scale this whole operation and meet DOD's objectives of getting all of these contractors certified on the timeline that they're setting out? So that's definitely something to, to, that we'll have to keep an eye on. Yeah, and that's a great point, too, about what's the nature of the agreement between the third-party assessor and the party being assessed, right? And how is that going to work, you know, even just in the access to the or understanding how that company does business and that sort of thing. That'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out. And all this stuff is, you know, it's important because it's cybersecurity and protecting, you know, corporate interests, national security interests, right, proprietary information, but also there's government contract compliance piece of it. And, and there's that Department of Justice Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative. And I think that's where we're going to go next because we've talked a lot about the requirements now. Let's talk about like where the compliance environment is. My guest today is Alex Canizares. He is a partner at Perkins Coie. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Alex Canizaris. He is a partner at Perkins Coie. Um, we're talking about cybersecurity requirements and federal contractors, what uh, contractors need to know and how the the whole, the whole framework um, is evolving over time. Uh, and one of the things that we've talked about a lot of requirements, Alex, but, you know, there's also, you know, um, you have some oversight uh, and compliance issues going on. And one of the biggest things um, that's out there that people are talking a lot about is the DOJ Civil Cyber Fraud Initiative um, and the Civil False Claims Act and its role in sort of the, you know, part of the enforcement of these contract requirements. Um, can you tell us about this, you know, this task force, you know, what's it doing, where's it been and where's it going? Absolutely, Roger. So, yeah, this initiative was announced by the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco in October of 2021. And it basically the Justice Department is prioritizing uh, cybersecurity noncompliance as an area for enforcement uh, under the false the Civil False Claims Act, using the Civil False Claims Act effectively as a tool uh, to pursue those that are are um, not you know complying with these requirements. And what we're starting to see, especially in recent months, is signs of activity that the Justice Department is is conducting investigations uh, related to cybersecurity. That they are that there have been um, QUITAM cases filed under seal uh, under the False Claims Act that the government is is investigating, and um, those, we're starting to see uh, signs that those cases are going to be moving moving along. Um, you know, there's basically three areas that the Justice Department has highlighted, sort of theories that they might be interested in. One is where a contractor is knowingly providing deficient cyber cybersecurity uh, products or services to the government. Um, another would be where the government, where the contractor is is misrepresenting somehow its cybersecurity policies or, or its its protocols. And then the third, which I think is quite relevant, going back to the rule that we were talking about, is 
using the False Claims Act to uh, pursue a company that is violating an obligation to report a cyber incident or a cyber breach. And that third kind of theory is one that we have. We haven't seen any cases on this yet, but I suspect this idea will be, get, you know, tested in the form of a, a, a in litigation or otherwise. Um, especially in light of this new requirement, you know, the companies will have to report cyber incidents within eight hours. Um, so, you know, basically, the False Claims Act has a knowing component to it. It is meant to be used as a it's a fraud statute it's a civil fraud statute and it carries treble damages and penalties but it really it, it, in order for someone to be liable there has to be a knowing non-compliance and i suspect we're going to see a lot of cases and sort of testing this question of what's knowing in this context of cybersecurity. i think that becomes quite complicated in part because of the involving nature uh, of these requirements Right. Have there any been any recent sort of settlements? Usually these cases settle or and DOJ does their press release or whatever. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, th there's two that I would like to just briefly mention. One is not a settlement, but it's a actually a pending case. Um, and a complaint was unsealed on October 5th uh, in district court in Pennsylvania, Eastern District of Pennsylvania, in a case that was filed by a relator under the Quitam statute of the False Claims Act um, against Penn State University. And basically the allegation that was made in that case is Penn State was subject to the 7012 clause and the DFARS and that they had submitted their scores to the to, to DOD and falsely you know, represented their, uh, their scores, that they had submitted, that they were compliant with NIST 800-171 when in fact, allegedly, they were not. Um, and, you know, I think this is an important uh, sort of illustration of the risks associated not only with failing to comply, but with the representations that you're making to the government. Because that, after all, is basically what the False Claims Act is about, is a false representation. And there's different theories for how that can trigger liability. And in this case, it's those scores that get submitted to the SPRS system that is basically meant to you know, tell the government we've implemented and here's what we came up with for our score. So that case is pending. Uh, DOJ decided uh, for now not to intervene in the case. And we were all watching to see what the D Justice Department was going to do. They said to the court, we're not ready to make a final decision about whether or not we're going to intervene. We're continuing to investigate. That's an important case to watch in terms of whether, you know, what happens with that. Um, and just briefly, the other one is a settlement with Verizon. So DOJ announced a settlement with Verizon on September 5th. And that case uh, dealt with, it was a $4 million settlement and Verizon uh, resolved FCA allegations. Uh, the allegations were they failed to fully implement cybersecurity controls in connection with IT services that they provided under GSA contracts over a period from 2017 to 2021. And if you read the press release and you look at the settlement agreement, what's very clear and what jumped out at me right away is DOJ gave them credit for cooperating and for self-disclosing. And if you look at the press release, it jumps out that they were cooperating. And that's really important because basically under DOJ policy, if you are subject to a False Claims Act proceeding, DOJ will give you credit in the form of often a reduced damages multiplier. In other words, smaller, you know, payout and a settlement. And also just an acknowledgement uh, in, in the press release sort of for public uh, purposes 
that you cooperated. And so that there is a policy in there and companies should be thinking about that. It helps, you know, that, um, you know, they self-disclosed this helped reduce, you know, exposure on the back end. And frankly, self-disclosure can reduce, uh, you know, uh, exposure on the front end by potentially dissuading, you know, uh, the agency from taking action in the first place. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit, like you mentioned, that's a, you know, a sound thing, you know, from perspective of cooperating, that sort of thing. And I'm going to refrain from making any kind of jokes about an academic in, in, institution and scores. Okay. <laughs> it's just like I was thinking about, I can't do it, but let's just talk about some best practices and things that people can do to start, you know, to, in terms of managing the risk, managing that cybersecurity security requirement from your perspective. Sure, absolutely. Well, just focusing for a moment just on the False Claims Act, I think one of the takeaways I would offer is thinking about how to document, you know, good faith, reasonable decision making when it comes to cybersecurity. Companies need to be thinking about not only are we implementing and the the controls, but are we documenting that we're implementing the controls so that if we are required, if we're audited, if we're we're required to demonstrate that we've um, complied, can we do that? And there are a lot of judgment calls that necessarily happen in this area. You know, if you look at the NIST 800-171 controls, there's 110 controls in there. There's a lot of room for disagreement, I would say, on, on many of these types of issues. And I've dealt with these with clients in terms of trying to understand, you know, judgment calls. But even though there will be disagreements, documenting the decision that's made is really important and acknowledging that, you know, there may be a different perspective that somebody has. I mean, that goes to the whistleblower aspect of this. I think companies should be mindful of listening to other points of view, understanding that, you know, if somebody has got a concern or particularly if they think there's been some sort of misconduct, having appropriate channels and reporting mechanisms to hear those people and have a culture that, you know, encourages those kinds of people to speak out, that will really mitigate, you know, potential FCA whistleblower type of situation. Uh, and for cybersecurity, I, I would say those types of risks and those considerations are particularly complicated because for many companies, it's not just the IT department, right? I mean, the cybersecurity right. is, it's management, it's the legal department, it's HR, it's all these different people coming together who might have visibility into what the company is doing. And, you know, for example, the Penn State case, it was a chief information officer who was the whistleblower. And so, you know, you've got a lot of different cooks in the kitchen, if you will, who are involved in cybersecurity. That makes it complicated. Um, and in terms of, um, you know, also having those people be, having an organizational framework, right? Having people understand, if we're going to make a cyber incident report, Who's going to do that? Like you need to have a plan in place. If you're going to, if you're going to be subject, subject to an eight hour requirement, that's definitely something that needs to get documented and put into a policy. Right. So one other thing too, and just in terms of like, well, cyber itself is complex, right? And there's could be various interpretations of performance requirements, that kind of thing. Is it in this context, is it like, and especially the super value decision that, you know, with regard to, you know, your interpretation, whether it's reasonable or not, is that enough? Is communicating with your contracting folks or your, you know, technical representative from the government to say, hey, this is my interpretation of this. Do you agree kind of thing? Is that important too? 
Absolutely. I think that, you know, that's a good practice anyway. We were talking about that before in the context of CUI, you know, communicating effectively with your customer. And, you know, if there's a room for ambiguity on something that's significant, it is important to think about, you know, how you communicate that and and get some guidance. And the super value case, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court earlier this year, it, it was a false claims act case focusing on what this question of knowledge. And so what does it mean for a false claim to be knowingly made? And basically the court said it's viewed using a subjective standard. What was the subjective state of mind of the company or the people involved? And so that really goes back to how do you demonstrate that you're acting in good faith and how are you acting, you know, uh, responsibly? And if there was an ambiguity, um, that sometimes will require making a judgment call about how much to share with the government. There might be attorney-client privilege issues you have to think through. Um, But that's definitely an important takeaway from that case, I would say. Right. And Alex, we're up on the time. So I want to thank you so much for for being on the show today. My guest today has been Alex Canizares. He is a partner at Perkins Coie. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.